Well, hello, everybody listening. Um, this is Cameron. And due to a tech technical snafu uh, on Sunday morning, yesterday, we actually didn't get like 95% of the audio for the sermon. So um, rather than just let the final message uh, of this 14-week series we've been in sort of just languish without an ending on the podcast for people who may be listening back later, or who missed gathering with us on Sunday, I thought I would bite the bullet and just re-record the message uh, here in my office. Um, so it's always lower energy when you do it this way, so I'm going to try to keep some pep into it. But um, yeah, if you're listening to this back later, I, my apologies. Um, of course, those things happen, but uh, hopefully this uh, can, can bring it home in a satisfying way. Um, well, Sam, Sam Fowles read the scripture for us on Sunday, uh, but I will have to do for now. So here we go. It's a long one. This is Revelation 21, verse 1 through chapter 22, verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the three east gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, a hundred and forty-four cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the streets of the city was and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory of the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of God. Let's pray, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Father, um, thank you for (laughs) technology like this that enables us to just get um, even re-record and get quickly out a message that uh, didn't quite work the first time. So, uh, Lord, as this goes out, you know my insecurities, even just recording alone in my office. Um, My prayer is that you would open up this scripture to us, these glorious final chapters of the whole Bible. Lord, that you would reveal, illuminate by the power of your spirit just what you want us to take away. And that we would understand, Lord, but understand so that we would know you better and follow you more closely. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question I want to start with is this. What do you think about when you think about heaven? What comes to mind? What thoughts, what ideas, what scenarios, but maybe even more deeply than that, what emotions? I know for a lot of Christians, one of the emotions, surprisingly, that actually comes up is fear. Fear because heaven sounds either too otherworldly or too incomprehensible or just too boring. I've felt that way before. There have been seasons of my life, particularly earlier on in my Christian life, where the idea of heaven was a little bit terrifying because my, my imagination was vacillating between basically a couple of different really wild ideas. And maybe you've had some of these ideas or have had them. One is that heaven is just this place where for some reason humans just like revert to these little angel babies with wings sitting on clouds playing harps as they're often depicted in, in some of our art. Or the idea that it's this like super transcendent spiritual otherworldly realm where we're just sort of like these translucent spirits floating around and there's not really anything recognizable or or, um, even like comprehensible about the type of existence that's there or maybe one (laughs) one that i hear probably most often is that heaven will be basically this endless worship service where we're all kind of stuck sitting in a pew and we're singing song after song after song, and, and uh, hopefully you enjoy singing worship, singing praise to God. But the idea of it going on endlessly, endlessly, forever and ever, and it's just this image of people like their intentions starting to drift, and they're starting to get bored, and there's like a weird taskmaster angel going, come on, smile, be happy. We're supposed to be happy about this. But it doesn't really sound that enjoyable. Maybe for reasons that we even feel ashamed to admit. So there are a lot of reasons why the idea of heaven, life with God into eternity, what we're promised on the other side of salvation could sound threatening or scary or weird or something that we just don't want to think about or we find it impossible to imagine enjoying. What I hope as we look at Revelation 21 into 22, which again is nearly the last verses of the Bible, 22 goes on for a few more verses to conclude, uh, but, but in it, we get this picture of the final, we get the most clearly defined picture of what the final home for us is going to be. This, this status that, that uh, the scriptures describe as the new heavens and the new earth. And my hope is that as we look at it, that some of that fear will begin to dissipate and you'll begin to see it for what it actually is, which is the absolute best news uh, we could possibly hope for. Um, and then we'll, we'll hopefully then tie it back into the larger themes of, of the series that we've been contemplating now. I think this is week 14 or 15 as we conclude. So here we go. I just want to highlight five elements of this, this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, which is the glorious end of the Bible. The first is that it's a whole new world. Um, the biblical authors don't use this language. This is very, you know, far more recent language, but it's a whole new universe you could imagine. It's a new world. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. And he tells us that he saw this new heaven and new earth, John did, but the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And when a lot of people hear that, um, they can assume that like this world that we live in currently is just going to all burn up. It's all going to be utterly destroyed. God is just going to sort of wipe the chessboard and then reset it up with all brand new material. But most theologians actually think that the, if, you, if you look at the way this theme is developed across the whole Bible, it's actually not quite that simple. 
and it's a little bit different. The best parallel, most theologians agree, to what's going to happen, the relationship between the old and the new, has to do with the resurrected body of Jesus. So think about Jesus. Jesus lived, he, he taught, he uh, did amazing works, and he ultimately died on the cross, but he was resurrected. And what was that resurrection body like? Well, apparently it was made of the same stuff, the same material, at least in part, of his original body. Because when he's raised, he still has the wounds, he still has the scars from the crucifixion. He's recognizable to his disciples. And it's not some sort of weird immaterial body. He's eating food with them. He's being touched by them. So the old body is repurposed, reconstituted. It's not just a resuscitation as though an angel was sort of like doing CPR on Jesus and brought him back and cleaned up his wounds and whatever. And his body was exactly the same as it was before. It, it's been... Um, it's been changed in some deeply important way. It's no longer perishable. It's fit for eternity with God. It's a glorified resurrection body, but it is still Jesus's body. It has some measure of continuity with his original body. And I think most theologians would say that probably the new heavens and the new earth, new earth has that kind of relationship to the current heavens and the current earth, the current universe. It's not a brand new world in that sense. It's a recreated, resurrected, perfected, glorified, wiped clean, mended universe that yes, is going to have some absolutely new features, but I believe that will share a lot of continuity with what came before. But the other thing, maybe the most important thing about this image of a new heavens and a new earth is the idea that this isn't just a new heavens and new earth as such. This is the remarriage of heaven and earth of God's space and of, and of human space coming back together. And that's the way original creation was intended. Remember, we spent three weeks looking at this at the beginning of this series. Creation itself was this glorious place and it was constructed in such a way that, that, that there's hints there that imply that the whole of creation was this cosmic temple for God. And on the seventh day when he came to rest, he, he, was, he, he found it a fitting place for him to rest in close proximity to his creations, his people his image bearers. And there's this describing of God kind of walking in the cool of the day with, with Adam and Eve. And there's this closeness, this intimacy. They are there together. Heaven and earth are these fully overlapped, like mutually present realities. And it's glorious. That was until Genesis 3, the fall. Adam and Eve rebel against God. They sin. And suddenly the barrier, there's barriers erected between heaven and earth. First of all, it's the, the post put out outside the Garden of Eden where they couldn't come back into the presence of God. And then heaven and earth, the story of heaven and earth reuniting is one of the main themes of the whole biblical story. And here's the culmination of it. It's no longer just in a temple or even just in us as the new covenant spirit indwelt believers in Jesus, uh, followers of Jesus who, who are said to be temples of the Holy Spirit ourselves. Now it's once again the whole creation. The entire city and the whole creation itself is the idea that heaven and earth are reunited. They are remarried, never to be separated again. And that is really good news. It's the central feature that we're meant to take away. So that's the new world. That's the basic features of the new world I think we should take from this. But second, there's a brand new intimacy. And that intimacy produces the healing presence of God. And just look at the intimate language here in verses 3 through 8. So uh, it's declared, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. So the presence of God is there. There's no veil. There's no barrier. There's no separation. There's no distance. There is perfect unity, familial closeness between humanity and God. And that is the ultimate center point, center point of this vision. But note what comes, what flows out of that. Notice what happens when, when these people, these people who are all in Christ, are encounter the presence of God. It's not scary. It's not terrifying. The first thing that it is, is healing. It's healing. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be more mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The idea here is that God reaches out his hand intimately, closely to wipe the tears 
from every one of our eyes. And it's, so it's not as though like we suddenly get memory wiped in our whole you know, existence before this. The things that produce tears, so many things in each of our lives that produce tears are just sort of vanished off into nothingness. Our stories still have significance and weight, but there is a divine, supernatural, perfect comfort and healing and promise that whatever those old ways were and the old way of doing things and the, the old vulnerabilities we all had by virtue of being in a sin-broken world, it will be no more. Death will never come around again, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain. The centerpiece of the new heavens and the new earth is the presence of God. And the presence of God is a healing, comforting, joy-bringing presence. I love that image of the old has gone and the new has come. The new presence of God with this new intimacy. So a new world, a new intimacy. Third thing is a new city. A new city. And it's just this incredible, I won't reread it here because it's a, a long description, but the angel says, I'm going to show you the bride, the people of God, the bride of Christ prepared for the groom. This is the wife of the lamb. And we just get this amazing picture. It has this, like it describes the whole city as having the glory of God. Its radiance is like the most rare jewels you could possibly imagine. And he describes the gates and he describes the foundations of those gates and the walls and the city itself and the, and the streets. It's like the gate. <laughs> well, let me just back up. Fundamentally, I hope, I'm sure you've heard this before. Revelation as apocalyptic literature, it's just full of biblical allusions and callbacks to things that have happened specifically in the Torah, the prophets. Oh, well, gosh, certainly in the New Testament as well. And so there, there's... Um, a lot of symbolic import to these images. Um, and we're gonna look at a little bit of that in just a second, but, but first I just want you to see at, at, at the very basic level, the picture of the city is meant to be a gloriously, incredibly beautiful picture. It's a vision of incredible beauty. I mean, the gates of the city are just one giant pearl. That's like <laughs> so hard to conceptualize. But he's just giving us a picture of the kind of beauty that is there. The gates adorned with the most rare and precious stones. The city is like, you see, everywhere you look, you see this purified gold that he keeps describing as this like transparent glass, which is almost like a contradictory image. But whatever it is, it sounds gloriously, gloriously beautiful. The idea of beauty has come up a lot in this series so far. The idea of God as the ultimate creator, God as the source of all beauty, and then human image bearers in our efforts to uh, create beauty and do these sorts of things on our own. We are imaging him and reflecting him. Uh, we're following in his footsteps. And here, once again, we see this image of God as however good human designs can be, and they can be pretty good, however wonderful our artistic creations are, they will always pale in comparison to the absolute stunning beauty of God's direct creation, <laughs> this holy city using, like John's trying to describe it using whatever images he can and it's just surpassing glorious beauty, which is really cool. So that's one piece of this, but the second is that this is just loaded with theological significance, this description. I mean, um, think of the way that redemptive history itself is built into the structures. You have the name of the 12 tribes inscribed on the wall. You have the names of the 12 disciples inscribed on the foundations. And I just, I just, something about that image has just knocked me over as I've been thinking about it this week. Think, imagine Peter, this Galilean fisherman, you know, just a young guy out there fishing, trying to provide for, for himself and his family. And Jesus comes along and is like, hey, follow me. And he, he rolls the dice, he takes the gamble, he says, okay, I'm gonna follow this Jesus. And we know that Peter went on to have a crucially important role in Jesus's ministry and then in the early church through the power of the spirit. But I just love the idea that this no-name fisherman from Nowheresville, Israel, at this particular point in history, now has his name inscribed in the foundations of the walls of the eternal heavenly city of God. It's just this idea that human history is not papered over. Again, it's woven into, it's, it's part of this new city that God is creating. The, st the stones that are described at one point, 
the the stones that are described are either the same or they're very similar to the ones that are on the high priest's breastplate. And then the the shape, the shape of the city, it's almost incomprehensibly big and it's a wild description, but it's a perfect cube, perfect square, perfect cube, which there's really one major perfect cube that exists uh, throughout the Old Testament, and that's the Holy of Holies. Within the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the presence of God dwelt on earth is in that shape. So the idea, the meta-communication here is that the whole city is actually the most holy place, or rather there is no part of this place that is not just saturated in the good presence of God. And we could go on and on about more of these images. I say, I encourage you to pull out this passage, print it out, underline, highlight, look at some commentaries, dig into this thing, because it's just full of all kinds of depth and riches here. But my point for now is that the city is a place of incredible beauty and a place of theological significance. Theological significance. So that's number three. Number four, there's a new partnership that's spoken of here. Namely, what we have here is the glories of the nations in the light of God. So he mentions that there's no temple. The whole, you know, the temple is God himself and the lamb. And there's no sun or moon. There's no need of sun or moon for the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night. So the gates are always open. There's no danger associated with nighttime there. They will bring into the city the glory and the honor of the nations. So we see a couple really important things here. First is that there are a lot of people. The image is that there are a lot of people because representatives from all of the nations are coming and going within this heavenly city. They are part of it. They are welcome there. What this tells us is that Jesus' promise happened. From John's perspective, looking at the heavenly future, he, he can see that the promises Jesus made happen. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be walking by the light of Jesus, the lamp. And it's interesting that it says they bring their glory into it. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but by their glory, we can mean the unique works and works of art and culture and ways of doing things. The glories that each of these unique nations and cultures builds. They will be brought into this city. They will be brought underneath the lordship of Jesus, laid at his feet, probably still used and, and you know, interwoven. It's this further of like multiplication of the idea of the body of Christ. People with different skills and different temperaments working together on a national, global, like multi-ethnic scale. Everyone bringing their goods in underneath Jesus to cooperate and to glorify him. And this idea of this partnership, the nations in partnership with God, all of their glories brought underneath God's glory, reminds us that this city is a real city. Like, whatever else we're meant to take from, from this description, we're not meant to think of something wholly other than genuine city life with, I assume, work and things to do and relationships. There's just this hustle and bustle imagery of people coming and going and there's things to explore and things to do. It's a real life in a real city on a real earth. <laughs> like, if, if you have trouble, like, imagine that, just, just get that image in your head because it's crucial to understanding what this is. It's crucial to understanding what's this is, what this is. But it's a city without the horrors that we can associate with city life. The dangers that come when we open ourselves up vulnerably to other human beings. That's the emphasis why he keeps bringing up this idea that nothing will unclean will ever enter it. No one who does what is detestable or false. Those who have not bent the knee to Jesus, who have not allowed themselves to be cleaned up and healed and made safe for this perfect set of relationships cannot be there. Because here there will be no violation of one another. There will be no sin. There will be no evil. There will be no wounding. There will be no injustice. There will be no exploitation. And that is good news. So imagine all the goods and the best of human culture working underneath and alongside God himself in the flesh face to face. And then it just going from there. That is the picture that we have. And that's amazing. That's a new partnership. The last thing we'll say, and we'll move on from this section, is that there is a new Eden. The blessings of the original paradise have returned. 
And that's what's happening in, in verse chapter 22. It says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And this just is a direct call back to Genesis 2 when God's describing Eden. He talks about this river flowing out and then dividing and watering the nations outside of it. This water of life that sustains and, and cr- makes life possible. It's just this generous picture. Even, even describing regions that, <laughs> that would later be, um, in Genesis, that would later be occupied by rival nations to Israel. The picture is just, even to them, the water of life goes out and it's generous and it's just good. Uh, And so it's there, just like Genesis 2. And then what does it say? On either side of the river, there was the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So now we have the tree of life, a tree that we have not seen since Genesis 2 as well. That tree that represents just the eternal, abundant, good, overflowing life of God. The connection to that tree means connection to God and all the life that he has. That tree is what we were cut off from as a result of the fall, and it's back. And I love this image that um, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. All the nations, all of these people underneath Jesus are invited back to partake of the tree again, and its result is just absolute healing. Absolute healing for all. So, at the center of the city is the garden. The same imagery from the Garden of Eden. Crucially, the most important features of the garden are there. Paradise is back. And it's now this harmonious relationship between the trees and the rivers, the garden imagery, and the city imagery. All of it working together. And the centerpiece of it is God himself. And Jesus the Lamb sitting on his throne there with us face to face, ruling in all perfection and goodness and wisdom and love. And we will worship him face to face and all of life will be worship and maybe we could say that in distinction to the idea that all that worship will be all of life i know there might be splitting hairs here but it's not an endless sitting in one place singing songs endlessly i assume we will sing songs to god because it's fun and it's good but i assume that all of life all of the diversity of life and relationships and going out and exploring his creation and working and being creative all of that is going to continue all of that was going to continue and it will all be done as acts of worship in perfect harmony with our god okay that's all i'm going to do for now there's so much more we could say but that's for another time what i want to ask now is what does this mean if we've characterized this right, if these five statements that we've made are you know, accurately summarizing what's here in this text, what, what does it mean? Well, first of all, what it means is that we are all, all of us who follow Jesus, are headed towards a deeper joy than we can now imagine. It's a future of good things. The good things we've been talking about, we're not suddenly cut off from them again and stuck in one isolated room, but there's a future of good things. I love the way that Andrew Wilson puts this in his book, God of All Things, which, as you might guess, uh, really inspired this series. He says, in New Jerusalem, all the evil features of your city and mine are removed. All their good features, Sultanahmet, Table Mountain, Piazza San Pietro, Chinatown, the Louvre, Central Park, they are amplified. She is full of art without idolatry, abundance without greed, peace without injustice. There's music, wine, laughter, and street food. Old people sit in their porches at dusk, and boys and girls play in the streets, quoting Zechariah 8:45 or 8, 4 and 5. And best of all, she's centered not on an urban park or monument or skyscraper or even on a cathedral or temple, but on a throne. God is in the midst of her, and she shall never be moved. I think he's exactly right. Picture a city and picture life, a real city in real life with all of its hard things, all of its ugly things, all of its broken things gone. And all of those little seeds of beauty and goodness and joy amplified. And at the center of it all, the crown jewel, the presence of God in our midst. 
we are finally face to face with the sun. You know, an image we've been, we've been coming back to again and again comes from C.S. Lewis. He describes the idea of taking these good experiences, these good things of life, treating them as, as uh, the warmth of the sun and tracing the sun, developing a habit to trace the sun beam back up to the sun itself to give God the praise and the adoration that he's owed. So I just want to read, read his, his little statement on this one more time and then, uh, and then connect it back to this. So it comes from his book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. He says, he's describing some of these amazing moments. He says, I've tried since that moment to make every leisure into a channel of adoration. And I don't simply mean by giving thanks for it. One must, of course, give thanks, but I mean something different. The heavenly fruit is instantly redolent of the orchard where it grew. The sweet air whispers of the country from which it blows. It's a message. We know we are being touched by a finger of that right hand at which there are pleasures forevermore. There need be no question of thanks or praise as a separate event, something done afterwards. To express the tiny theophany is itself to adore. Gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. So in this day, the day that Revelation 21 and 22 is talking about, the end of the story, it depicts the fact that we will be face to face with that sun. With the sun. There won't not, will no longer need to be this blurring and this like forgetfulness and this ignoring of him who is the giver. We will be face to face with the source of all goodness, the author of love and joy himself. Jesus himself is the culmination of it all. And it's not that other good things exist. I think I've been arguing consistently that those good things will still be there and we'll have joy in them too. But there will be no mystery about who it all comes from and who the center point of it all is. We will have them with Jesus among us, who will, his, whose beauty and glory will surpass even the greatest thing you've ever encountered. That's the picture. And that's amazing. So that is a picture of the glorious end of the Bible, which is really a new beginning. A new beginning. A new starting place from which humanity continued to live out its, its purpose and its mission alongside God into eternity future. What's that going to look like? Man, we can only speculate. But I do love speculating. So everyone get together and speculate. Have a little speculation sesh. Email me and we'll do it. But we'll stop there for now. So that's the first movement. The second movement and these last two will go much quicker. The second movement is this. What do we do with that in light of... You know, what do we do with that today? What do we do with tomorrow today? How do we live in light of that tomorrow? Well, this is going to recap a lot of what we've been talking about. You can, I hope you can bear with me uh, if it seems uh, redundant. I, I don't think we can get these reminders enough. First, is just a reminder that every experience of truth and beauty and love and goodness in this life is also a foretaste or a hint of that coming day, the day we've been describing. Each of these good things in the here and now is a promise. It's a promise with a coming fulfillment that's going to come with the glory of the new creation. So in light of that, may we do a few things. First, may we fight for the eyes to see in the here and now. May we practice the presence of God in the words of Carmelite monk, Brother Lawrence. May we take up the practice, privilege, and responsibility of noticing, savoring, and reveling in the words of Anglican priest Tish Harrison Warren, may we build a habit of holy attention as an idea that we keep coming back to here. Christianity, note this, it is not meant to be a negative and joyless slog. Even in the midst of deep suffering, you know, Christianity is wildly realistic about the fact that life is hard, sin is real, Death is devastating. Injustice happens all the time. Sin corrupts. We are both victim and victimizer constantly. So it's not papering over those things. But it's saying even in the midst of the deep suffering that is sure to come, we, can be, we should be the most aware, the most celebratory, the most thankful for the good things around us. May we always be able to see the little glimpses of common grace, of favor from God that surround us. 
May we build that habit of holy attention. And as we said, uh, when we kind of devoted a sermon specifically to that, it takes some theological understanding to do that. This is why theology is important. It's part of us getting these eyes to see, having the categories and the lenses to view. If we're going to do this, we need a robust doctrine of God. Who is God at bottom? What is he like? We need that doctrine of God as the loving trinity who is within himself love and whose love overflows in generosity towards his creation. We need a good doctrine of creation. What is creation for? What is, uh, What are the goods and the beauties for? Why are they there? Are they meant to be ignored? Are they meant to be denigrated? Are they meant to be enjoyed and celebrated? We need a good doctrine of general revelation. How does God speak through the creation that he's made, which the Bible just affirms over and over again, he does. We need a doctrine of the image of God. What are people for? What does it mean to be in his image? What do we do with our creative gifts, our desires to be makers, to be cultivators, to be developers? We need a doctrine of sin that takes all these things and then says, yeah, and there's a problem now. There's a problem now. Sin has to inform the way that we conceptualize all these things. We need a doctrine of common grace. The idea that there is a saving grace that comes through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and no other way, but that apart from that saving grace, there is a common grace that is given to everyone. There's a common grace that is given to everyone. Everyone encounters the goodness of God in, in, in ways small and large at different points across their life. Even the fact that we can breathe air, even the fact that our taste buds, you know, can allow us to experience these flavors, even the fact that we, you know, are able to encounter the joys of a good and healthy relationship. Now, there's a lot of negative things that we experience alongside those too, but each of those is an act of common grace from God. We have doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus, the fact that when Jesus came to be with us, When he dwelt among us, he took on a real body. When he raised again, he still had a body, a resurrection body. So we need need an, an incarnation theology that reminds us of the goodness of the physical. And of course, we need a doctrine of the last things, which is what we're doing in part here. A vision of just what does the future hold and what is that future's relationship to now. So... This isn't the time to develop, all, you know, to do a systematic theology on all these doctrines or whatever. But I just say that by way of reminder. We need to continue to be just students of, of the Lord and his word so that we can develop these eyes to see using these amazing resources he has for us in the scriptures. So may we fight for the eyes to see. Second, may we be glimpses of the coming of this coming day, the new heavens and the earth ourselves. That is the logic of all of Paul's language that we are new creations in Christ. You see it? We've been talking about the new creation, but here in the here and now, we are new creations in some sense. By God's spirit, we are new creations. Now we are in process, if we are in Christ, of being conformed to the image of Christ. And this means that in our moments of abiding in him, our moments of obedience to him, we ourselves can become pictures and promises to others of what is to come. This is why faithful discipleship is so important. And any idea that, you know, Christianity is just something we go, ah, it doesn't really matter if we really try to sincerely follow him. It doesn't matter if we actually try to try to live after him. Because our main task in this life is to invite others into the glorious promise we've been talking about, to get to be there, to taste it for themselves. And we have to do that in word, gospel proclamation, and in deed. A whole life witness. It makes these pretty wild things we believe and proclaim seem more plausible by being ourselves a foretaste of that new creation life. Our brothers and sisters in the church need that. Our neighbors outside the church need that desperately. They need that to help them imagine that another life in another world is possible because they're seeing glimpses of it right now. Then a third thing, a third thing I would say is that may we just not lose hope. You know, every hint of joy we experience in the here and now can be one of two things. For some, horrifically, they can be actually things that provoke sadness. Because if you hold to, say, a materialist account of the universe, that all that exists is matter in motion, 
and everyone's just going to die and then their consciousness blips off into nothingness and more than that the eventual end of our universe itself is just a heat death just everything gone cold and static and stationary and everything is you know no life is possible then it can become overwhelming to enjoy any moment of goodness any savor any relationship and go well it's just going to end it's just going to end it can be sweet but there is a bitterness behind it it is not so for the christian friends no, every hint of joy we experience in the here and now will not evaporate into nothingness if Jesus walked out of the tomb. If Jesus walked out of the tomb and if he is bringing this new heaven and this new earth, that means every hint of joy is going to be enshrined, fulfilled, completed, resurrected. It's pointing to something even more joyful that's coming for us. In the conclusion to his really good book, um, In Search for the Common Good, Jake Meter describes one of the most beautiful joyful days of his life and it's it was a day of peace where he just had filled with plans coming together and there were just favors from like the jewelers he was working with and the servers at the restaurants it was a day of beautifully of beauty beauty filled with delicious meals and a performance of Handel's Messiah at a beautiful cathedral but ultimately it was a day of deep significance the day that he proposed to his future wife and marked the beginning of their journey toward their new life together and so with all that in mind listen to what meter has to say about this day he experienced he says there are things we experience in this world physical earthly things that are beautiful and tell us something about the world to come things like cathedrals and seventh century oratorios and rings that have been in the family for 70 years and long-standing customs like the groom proposing on one knee a gesture that suggests vulnerability and fealty and an intention to serve and there are more things than that. A good family meal where the only thing more pleasant than the food itself is the conversation, the pleasure taking and making something beautiful that we mean to share with someone else, whether it's a painting or a cake or a story. The good news of the Christian faith is that these things will not fail and that the delight we derive from them today, delight that God smiles upon since he's the giver of the gift, will continue into eternity, world without end. Christ's promise to his people to come to our rescue and renew us, but both us and the world will not fail, even when the church has been compromised and assailed by enemies both within and without. These things will not fail when the world itself seems to be failing, and they will not fail at the end of all things when God returns and creation is laid bare. And the reason they will not fail is that their goodness and beauty they reflect. In their goodness and beauty they reflect the goodness and beauty of the God who is eternal the God for whom and to whom all things are made. Well, there's a third movement, a third movement. And that is what is our response to this God who gives? As we think about the whole story we've been considering from creation to new creation, and the gifts that we get to enjoy from God in the here and now. What, how do we respond to this God who's at the center of it all? And we start with this. Who is this God again, fundamentally within himself? What we said, our very first message of the series, that before God ever created, he was a father loving a son. Jesus gives this window in John 17 as he's praying to this father. Before the foundation of the world, you loved me, Jesus says. So within the Trinity, there was a father loving a son, a son loving a father, and a spirit of perfect loving communion. Three in one. One God, these three persons experiencing this loving unity. And we see that from that love, he just overflowed that this biblical God is a God of gracious, self-giving love. That love motivated creation. It motivates his patience and his grace. It motivates his sending of Jesus to the cross even to those who ignore, despise, or dishonor him. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us that God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The goodness of the sun itself, the goodness of the rains, both of these things which make life and flourishing possible, they are for everyone. God continues to bless everyone without distinction. That's his common grace. 
or the Apostle James declares, as we've said many times, that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Our God, the biblical God, is a fountain of abundance and blessing, and that culminates in the most radical act of self-giving love the world has ever known. The giving of his son, Jesus. As the Apostle John declares, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And let's keep going. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be served, saved, and served, saved through him. If God is this good, is this generous, is this loving? Is this gracious? Then what could we possibly do but trust Him and obey Him and serve Him and pursue Him and cling to Him? If you're a non-believer listening to this, if you are, I'm so glad, I'm so honored you give your time to, to listen to this. I, just, I, I at least want you to just understand what the Bible is claiming for itself. The Bible is claiming that, that, that though you may be far from God, he has not been far from you. He's been blessing you with good, joy-filled experiences as gifts your whole life. He's empowered you with skills and with aptitudes that you can employ to make the world a little bit more cultivated than it was before you found it. He has poured out his love and his common grace on you. At least understand what the Bible is claiming, what God would say. That every genuinely good thing you have ever encountered at each and every point in your life has been an intentional gift from a gift giver, from the God of the universe, the triune God to you. And more than that, he has sent his son to die for you, to bring you into his family into his kingdom, into his eternal city that we've been describing. His love has already gone out before you. He just asked that you would trust him today. Everyone who believes in his heart confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. Say that today. Say, Jesus, I want you. I want you to be Lord. And begin to follow and all of these things are yours. If you're a believer, listening to this, then the deepest application for this entire series we've been spending several months on, and this whole biblical theme, what do we, what do we make of the good things in the world? The deepest application is just to trust him more and more. You know, to trust him when it's hard to follow him, and it is hard to follow him lots of times. When it seems that he's asking you to put down too much, when you look at other people and it's like, he hasn't given them the same burden he's given me. When it seems he's asking you to die to yourself in the most agonizing ways. When his commands just don't make any sense, when you've wrestled with the scriptures, you've said, okay, I, I'm pretty certain this is what it says, and I don't know why it says it. I don't know why, why God would command me to do this thing or to deny myself this thing. It just doesn't make sense to me. When his promises seem far away, he really is this good. And if he is, he really can be trusted in those moments. You've already tasted his goodness and his sweetness. He can be trusted. The God of every good thing really does have your deepest good, your deepest flourishing in mind. So for all of us who've been walking with Christ for some time, the question is, will you just trust that more today than you did yesterday? Will you open yourself up more to him? Will you follow a little bit more closely with a little bit more gratitude? Well, to conclude, I want to read Psalm 104. We read Psalm 104 earlier in the series, maybe the second week. 
and I want to read it again to conclude, but I, I'm not going to expound upon it. I'm not going to say anything. We'll just conclude with it. But I just want to see if it hits you a little bit differently now than it did 14 weeks ago. My prayer is that we may have the eyes to see all around us what the psalmist here sees, the cascade of gracious gifts from God all around us that can be enjoyed in the here and now, that connect us to God, but that ultimately point forward to our glorious future when we will see him face to face. So, listen to Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes the mess his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled, at the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills, they give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches, from your lofty abode your water, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lion roars for her prey, seeking food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work, into his labor until the evening. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. May it be so. Go in peace.